You're listening to ReachMD Radio, a channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a Certified Medical Director in Long-Term Care. What unique considerations should healthcare professionals keep in mind for preventing venous thromboembolism, or VTE, in long-term care? Joining us to discuss antithrombotic therapy in long-term care is Dr. T.S. Demarajan, Vice Chairman, Department of Medicine, Clinical Director, Division of Geriatrics, and Director of the Geriatric Medicine Fellowship Program at Montefiore Medical Center, the North Division, in Bronx, New York. T.S., welcome to the program. Thank you. All right, let's start by setting the stage. How common is venous thromboembolism in long-term care? That's a very good first question, Dr. Tanglos. The correct answer would be the precise prevalence or incidence is not known. In fact, that's one of the reasons that this subject needs to be looked at further. Whatever we have is either anecdotal or very small studies, enough to say that venous thromboembolism does occur and that at autopsies, we have seen evidence not only of venous thromboembolism in the sense that some of these residents who died in the nursing home had pulmonary embolism, but this was not detected during life in the care of the patient in the weeks prior to death. So the correct answer would be the precise incidence is not known. We, however, do know that after certain illnesses, such as typically orthopedic surgery in the hospital setting, the prevalence is as high as somewhere between 40 and 60% of deep vein thrombosis. These patients do enter the long-term care setting either for rehab or for stay thereon, and so that risk that has been noticed in the hospital setting should continue into the long-term care setting. There are many similar conditions where there's a much higher likelihood for deep vein thrombosis. They can be both surgical as well as medical, surgical being typically orthopedic surgery either for the hip or for the knee, but even after abdominal surgery. Medical conditions can be many, including heart failure, cancers in general, infectious processes, and to make it even simpler, any condition that restricts your mobility and kind of forces you into a bed rest or minimizes your opportunity to ambulate. All these are associated with a higher likelihood of venous thromboembolism. So while I have not given you a precise incidence, a general number would be anything stretching from 10 to 15% at the bottom to 50 to 60% at the top. We're off to a tough start because, you know, we like to make our audience comfortable. We like to give them facts. We like to settle them down. And now we've got venous thromboembolism lurking around every corner. This is not reassuring. So we'd better get on to a continuing discussion so that we have a better idea of understanding what patients we have at risk and then what we can do about it. So you've already given us a framework What more specifically would you like to share with our listeners as we assess patient risk? So the comment here would be that this is not a new entity that has come up all of a sudden in the last several years. We probably had the entity of deep vein thrombosis and its major lethal complication, that's pulmonary embolism, all along. 
It is just that we are more cognizant of this fact. And accordingly, the societies, and the most important I would like to stress, is the one that came up from the ACCP in the CHEST journal in 2008 were guidelines on how to manage to prevent deep vein thrombosis and its consequences, mainly tailored to the hospital setting. So this is where the so-called awareness is increased. And today, more as a performance improvement or a systems improvement process or a quality improvement process, if I might use the word, we are expected to screen people who get admitted to the hospital and very specifically, 100% of patients who are in the critical care setting. Okay, so this is the framework. If we take that as the framework and then recognize that patients from the hospital today enter the long-term care setting commonly, some of these patients also go home to the community setting after going through the nursing home. We have a triangle where patients are located in all three areas and are subjected to the risk. I'm not talking about the patient who is chronically in long-term care for a few years until dying or death takes place. I'm talking about patients who have either come from long-term care to the hospital and returning or started with the hospital in the first place and went to the nursing home for a variable period of time. So if these guidelines were applicable to the hospital setting, should they be applicable to long-term care? I think that's the question we have to ask. Well, let's stay with this because we can get into a discussion on guidelines, but we can also get into a bit of a discussion on checklists to assess risk. And I think our audience might be just as interested in checklists that you might use in the hospital or that you might apply at the nursing home to assess risk. You want to make any comments? Yes. There are many criteria, not that a single one is the best, just to make a name following one of these criteria that are used, we talk about so-called wells criteria, where you give points to a variety of illnesses. The most important that would be applicable to our geriatric population is age. The older you are, especially after the age of 70 or 75, so the older you are and the more likely you are bed-bound, the higher the risk. On top of this, you can throw in a variety of factors Surgery, high on the list, especially orthopedic or abdominal. Forms of medical illnesses, high on the list are cancers and heart failure or nephrotic syndrome. Also to be considered are prior histories of deep vein thrombosis. And finally, uh, septic processes. If I take these as a basic group, it is likely that many patients who are in the hospital has one, two, or even more of these predisposing factors. The more the predisposing factors, the higher the likelihood, and we ought to do something for these patients. When I say something, it does not always have to be an anticoagulant. It could be one of the mechanical processes which are non-pharmacological, or it can be a medication which is either parenteral or oral. Even better still, one should not forget the fact that one could ambulate these patients. So you have a framework, you assess the risk, and now decide what is best for a given patient, fully factoring in, of course, all of the considerations which are now more relevant to the nursing home, namely your life expectancy, quality of life, or ethical issues. In the hospital, we are generally aggressive to treating these patients. Should we adopt that same strategy in long-term care is a big question. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Tangalos, and joining me to discuss antithrombotic therapy in long-term care is Dr. T.S. Damarajan, Vice Chairman, Department of Medicine, Clinical Director, Division of Geriatrics, and Director of the Geriatric Medicine Fellowship Program at Montefiore Medical Center, North Division, in the Bronx, New York. T.S., let's continue with our discussion. You've described just about every post-transfer patient to the nursing home as being at risk. In the prevention, you've now hinted at both drug and non-drug interventions. There have been a number of studies out. Go ahead and continue with your discussion. So far, what I said to you was in the hospital setting, and that's the easier part, because most providers know that the patient gets out of the hospital and the problem ends right there. The patient who enters long-term care is different. Different in the sense that, A, if this patient was to leave long-term care and has come there for, let's say, short-term rehab, just rehab, intensive or less intensive, you have an endpoint and you could consider these measures knowing fully well that this patient is going to return to the community. What about the patient who comes back, who re-enters the same facility, long-term care facility that the patient was in, or is going to stay in this facility for a long time? We have to consider the fact that many of these patients have chronic processes. Let's take on top of the list cognitive impairment with varying degrees of dementia. Is this patient likely to understand the benefits of long-term anticoagulation for venous thromboembolism prophylaxis? Is this patient likely to cooperate with you? Is there a risk? Is this patient someone who is likely to fall? And by the way, falls are not a true contraindication, but nevertheless, that comes into your mind. Is the family going to permit you to monitor these patients as you should, fully taking into account life expectancy and, of course, quality of life? So you have a group of patients in the long-term care setting that are very unique, very heterogeneous, where decision-making is extremely difficult. It's very simple, therefore, for me to say we should individualize each patient's management. I think that's probably what I would say, because anything else I say could raise questions as to whether it's right or whether it is wrong. But we would have to take, and then aside from this, there are other issues. Are the providers in long-term care, besides the doctor, the nurse, the therapist, are Every one of these various disciplines tuned to the story of what anticoagulation means. What are the risks, leave alone the benefits associated with anticoagulation? What about the formulary? Is that going to be unique? The hospital tells you to use a specific drug. We have the older drugs. We have newer ones coming out. Is this going to be easy to follow? And finally, what about the cost of monitoring? The costs are, I think, the least of the problems, but I think if you take this whole package, decision-making is extremely difficult. We do not have formal guidelines in long-term care, though I must admit that AMDA created an anti-thrombotic therapy toolkit just a few years ago, largely extrapolated from all the society guidelines, uh, some of which I already talked about. Yes, let's talk about some of the cost issues, uh, the formulary issues, and in fact, going from a hospital to a nursing home might involve changes in drugs because of formulary. How do you want to advise our listeners regarding that? We, in general, should keep costs down. 
I think this is true, by the way, in all settings. Healthcare is in a crisis. I think in the long run, we have to produce the maximum benefit with the least cost. So that's easy to say. Uh, right now, to the best of my knowledge, in long-term care, if I was to send a patient from surgery, post-surgery, they're always willing to give anticoagulation on a short-term basis. Typically, after surgery, you would need this for a process of 28 to 35 days. So we are talking of four to five weeks. Everybody knows that's an endpoint. And that can be achieved with one of several heparins, which need very little monitoring. It could be the low molecular weight or the unfractionated heparin. Or in other cases, the use of warfarin. Warfarin by itself is not expensive, but the lab tests that are required to go with warfarin to monitor the INR must be also factored in. Still, when you talk about four to five weeks, it's not going to be much. Today, in long-term care, when we talk about atrial fibrillation, we do have patients placed on warfarin, interestingly, long-term. And we don't seem to complain much about it because we are kind of accustomed to it. When you talk about atrial fib, you think of warfarin. And nobody makes a big deal about this. But now let's take the same scenario and let's take long-term prophylaxis for a venous thromboembolism. And we are talking of, let's say, three to six months, or in some case where there's a prior history of deep vein thrombosis, some would consider today that the prophylaxis should be for life. I think people are going to raise questions as to the ease of monitoring. Costs vary tremendously. Formularies may get some of these drugs at a low cost, but costs between the standard unfractionated heparins, cheapest, to low molecular weight heparins, a little more expensive, to the new drug that is about to come out and actually has come out and is only at this time approved for non-valvular atrial fibrillation, and we are talking about dabigatran, this drug is comparatively more expensive. So if you had 10 patients on dabigatran in a facility of 250 beds, that would be a large cost. So costs vary tremendously. I would believe that most doctors would have to work well within their formulary restrictions. And many facilities group together to get the drugs at the least cost, and I don't think they'll have much of a choice. So irrespective of what is suggested in the hospital, I don't think it's wrong to trade a drug for another based on your formulary. I think this is something that's bound to happen and probably already happens. With that, I would like to thank my guest from Montefiore Medical Center, Dr. T.S. Damarajan. T.S., thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. You're most welcome, and I enjoyed speaking with you, Dr. Tanglos. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio, a channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.